It's time for another episode of Tucson Means Business, featuring Tucson's top entrepreneurs and leaders in the business world. And now your host, Mark Bishop. And welcome to another Tucson Means Business, proudly sponsored by the 49ers Golf and Country Club. Um, out there on uh, Tanker Verde, yes, still playing golf, but of course the rules go down and separations and so on, and single carts. If you're visiting, that's uh, the way it is. The Rincon Grill is open, of course. You can take away food and uh, sanitize and uh, the the uh, the rules regarding, you know, sitting apart and so on. So I need to tell you that. Now, my guest for this podcast was born in Detroit, raised in Michigan, and achieved a, a BS psychology, I always say that's the bullshit one, from Western Michigan <laughs> University. I'd like to welcome Mark Ziska. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. We sound like a and dog I with a hair lip, don't we, mate? Mark, Mark, we, huh? <laughs> we do, exactly. And I noticed that you uh, talked about takeaway at the restaurant at uh, Rincon. 49ers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Take take takeaways, obviously, uh, English term. Well, it's an Australian term. So to Australian. go. Australian. Yeah. Okay. You know, you guys call it to go. Where are we going? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, look, after you graduated, you packed the car, moved to Huntington Beach, California, the so called dream of almost every Midwestern kid. Why is that, mate? Well, I graduated in December of the year. And after the holidays, I could not take any more snow. I packed my dog and uh, packed all my belongings and took the road trip across the United States to California. And uh, what a dream it was. We moved right next to the water in Huntington Beach. Oh, lovely. And that was my dream come true. Well, uh, Doggy, what was his or her name? Her name was Maud. She was a rescue shepherd. Lovely. And Maud was a wonderful animal. I rescued her literally from a farm. She was a brood, uh, a brood dog. Mm -hmm. The owner of the dog just kept her for breeding. And uh, when I got there, I found her. It was uh, it was the year before in January. And she was skin and bones and had the hair coming off of her. And I just Aww. asked the guy if I could take her home. And he let me do it. There you go. And I took Maude all the way from my parents' home where I uh, I left from all the way to California. And she slept in the car with me. Isn't that lovely? And, and a trip she'll never forget. Uh, you yeah, that's right. Good Nor will I. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, you still weren't happy with uh, not doing any study, so you went back to college, uh, this time a Master of Industrial Psychology in Long Beach from CSU. What made you go for that one, Mark? Well, as many of us here, with a degree in psychology, there's a lot you can do, but very few ways to make money other than be a waiter, bartender, or... Uh, maybe just uh, be an ear for somebody to, to, to talk to. So I decided to go back to school to get my master's degree. And uh, Cal, Cal State Long Beach was just down the road from Huntington Beach. So it was a natural for me to go to mm. Long Beach. It's a great school. We'll get into your book in a moment, um, why I've invited you on the show. Uh, but I always like to get the career background of my guests because it often tells a lot about you. 
Uh, with reference to you, we're talking Hughes Aircraft. Uh, Raytheon, what's the story there? Well, when I, uh, when I was still in school, I ended up, uh, that's at Long Beach, I ended up getting a job with Hughes Aircraft Company working in labor relations. Now, for those who don't know, labor relations is negotiating with the unions mm. and solving uh, grievances and employee relations problems. I just loved it. I thrived in that environment. And I ended up spending 24 years with Hughes and Hughes and Raytheon. Raytheon ended up buying Hughes. And uh, it's a quick story. I don't want to go into too much detail, but I was on the merger and acquisition team. Mm -hmm. Hughes was going to buy Raytheon. So uh, we're ready in the basement of Hughes Aircraft headquarters, and we're getting all the documents ready to be signed. And the next thing I know, our, our CEO came down and said, well, I have good news. The negotiations are over. You're all going to be Raytheon employees. <laughs> so the, as it goes, uh, you, you never know who's going to come out buying whom. Mm -hmm. And Raytheon bought us shortly thereafter. Uh, my job uh, was uh, I closed the plant in Fullerton, California. I literally was the person with the key that passed the key over to the new owner. And my job went to either Portsmouth, Rhode Island or Tucson, Arizona. And that was an easy choice for me after experiencing snow. Right. I wanted to come where there is no snow. So I came to Tucson and, and finished my career. Right. And I think you ended up as the senior director of vice president of HR and communications with Raytheon, didn't you? Exactly. So just a, a quick clarification. So if you were in the administrative roles, you became a senior director. Okay. The vice presidents were really reserved for the, the program specific things like uh, Tomahawk uh, product line or air to air product line. Those were VPs. So we were, we were uh, equivalent and uh, it helps people to understand how HR was positioned in the company. Right. Well, uh, it was a good career, many years. Uh, we move forward to where you retired in 2007, married over 30 years now, raised, uh, what, two of your four boys here in Tucson. Uh, you've yeah. been very active in community organizations, La Fonterra, uh, Pima College Foundation, DM50. What was it about supporting uh, about, you know, many of the community agencies? What drew you to that? So it's interesting. When I got to Tucson, I ended up with the responsibility of community relations in addition to human resources and communications. Community relations was part of my responsibility. Mm -hmm. I, had, uh, I had a great uh, person that worked for me. Her name is Diane Bissell. She's still here in Tucson. And she took me under her wing and said, Mark, we're going to get you in the community as quickly as possible. And you're going to learn Tucson from the south side. So that was our backyard. Uh, we were located south of the airport. So Diane took me out to the south side and introduced me to every one of the really great Mexican restaurants and the really wonderful people who um, are primarily the Latino community on the south side. And uh, I've been associated with, with them. Uh, I like to say that. I hope they accept me, but I feel a part of them ever since. And that got me into 
uh, La Frontera, um, which I didn't know at the time, but now that I understand enough Spanish, it means uh, on the frontier or on the border. Hmm. So uh, La Frontera is uh, Arizona's largest mental health agency. Uh, they're uh, a private uh, not-for-profit organization headquartered here in Tucson, but located uh, throughout the state. Um, so I served on that organization as on the board until I termed out. I was on Pima Community College Foundation again until I termed out. Uh, that one was 20, 20 plus years on wow. the college foundation. Mm -hmm. And DM50, when I got to Tucson, I was assigned to uh, attend the DM50 events. And for those who don't know, Davis Month and 50 are those businesses that support the Air Force Base. Oh, okay. That support the airmen who are here in Tucson. Uh, many of whom come from all over the country. And when they come here, we like to hear, and we do hear from them, that this is one of the most welcoming air bases in the country. And they love to be assigned to Davis Monthan. Wow. So I just got it in my blood, and I, I love to uh, be involved in community activities. That's great. Great stories there. And, uh, uh, I mean, you've seen the community college grow. I had the privilege of interviewing the chancellor the other day, and, uh, boy, are they up to a lot of good things. Now, on a bit of research, I found that you were referred to as the strategy maniac. What on earth is that? Well, that's interesting because uh, – it really dates back to uh, Yum Foods. If you remember, Yum Foods was Taco Bell, uh, Pizza Hut, okay. Kentucky Fried Chicken. All right. They referred to their employees as customer maniacs. And they had one of the best strategy deployment programs that I've ever seen. So in sharing stories about Yum Foods, my client, my one of my early clients said, Mark, if they're customer maniacs, you're a strategy maniac because there's nobody I've ever seen that gets so excited over strategy as you do. Mm. And a name kind of stuck. Uh, it, uh, it was referred to by my coworkers. They referred to me as that. And then a lot of customers referred to me as that. So that's go. how I got the nickname Strategy Mania. Well, it could be a lot worse, couldn't it? It could, <laughs> yes. And I have been called a lot worse. <laughs> uh, you're listening to Tucson Means Business with Mark Bishop, and my special guest is uh, author. I don't get to do authors very often, and we're leading up to something very important. Now, there was a project in early 2010, 11, 12, that you regard as more difficult than working with engineers. Now, how That's did that right. come about? Well, if many of those of us who've been in Tucson and were in Tucson around that time, 2010, 11, 12, remember that the University Medical Center was a separate organization and wanted to say, stay a community hospital. But the university, they really were responsible for funding the College of Medicine at the University of Arizona. They really didn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. They wanted to keep their money inside the, the hospital. But uh, at the time, the uh, Board of Regents 
really wanted to push for the University Medical Center and the College of Medicine to become one. And as that occurred, the physicians that were attending at the hospital, at the medical center, were part of another organization, and that was University Physicians Network. Okay. So in about a three-year project, we pulled together all of the diverse and divergent occupations and uh, cultural communities of the various organizations, the College of Medicine, the University of Physicians, the University Medical Center, and brought them together as one. Big job. Working, mm. working with engineers is a difficult task, but when you work with doctors who are surgeons, radiologists, pediatricians, uh, all the way to radiology technicians, to food service workers, to uh, hospital uh, attendants. That was the most diverse group of people that I ever worked with in my life. And it was a tough, tough job well, to get everybody aligned around their values mm -hmm. and their mission, their vision and their goals. Well, it's a plethora of, of you know, diverse energies and, and, and uh, roles, job roles. Um, high-end brains down to God knows what and in between, but love and care and, yeah, a real mix, a real mix. And you pulled that off. So that was your big breakthrough, huh? Yeah, that was what I would say is my breakthrough in consulting. Okay, now, like a lot of other people, COVID has forced you to adjust your work. So you turned to writing, Mark Ziska. And after this break, we're going to delve into Do No Harm, a new book that offers a proven and time-tested process that will help law enforcement organizations, right, think about, well, more than once what they're doing. And this is Tucson Means Business. Well, I hope you're enjoying this episode of Tucson Means Business. And, of course, we're very grateful and very proud to have as our sponsor the 49ers Golf and Country Club, a uh, icon tradition here in wonderful Tucson, Arizona. And uh, my particular guest today from the 49ers is the Director of Membership and Tournaments, and his name is Casey Polivchak. Hi, Casey. Hey, Mark. How's it going today? It's going well. Thank you very much. I want to talk about memberships a lot of talk uh, about golf clubs going down and people not playing again and we're increasing what's happening there you know the club over the last seven years has just really made a nice big increase in uh in membership it's been steady but if you look at our numbers you know year over year we're definitely on the uh, on the climb is there anything specific that you can uh, point the finger at for that do you think Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, we've got a new owner and he came in and he's just revitalized the club. Um, the club was on the verge of uh, going bankrupt or closing uh, when the new owner stepped in and he's just continued to invest in the in the club, the facilities, the golf course, uh, the restaurant. And he's just uh, just a bit of a blessing for the, the neighborhood, the community, but definitely the uh, the members of 49er Country Club. 
Well, it's quite unique. It's a beautiful course with trees everywhere for shade. And of course, a lot of people think in the desert. I mean, this particular show goes all over the place, so you never know who's going to hear it, uh, or which country for that matter. But should they be visiting Arizona? And uh, I've heard a lot about the 49ers Golf and Country Club. It's easy to find. It's on uh, Tankaverde Road, heading east out of town. Anybody can point that way. The GPS can get it, not a problem. It's about 12,000. And you can see it because of the entry gates. Very nice entry gates there. And you'll see the club on your left, which is the Rink on Mountain Grill, as you go into the actual golf club. And then you'll find the pro shop and so on. So it's easy to find from that point of view. What would you say to visitors? We do have a lot of visitors, don't we, from the Midwest, from the North, uh, the colder climates and so on, as we call friendly our snowbirds. Mm -hmm. yep. What would you um, say to them about if they haven't been to the 49ers yet? Okay, so 49er, I would liken it to a Midwestern-style golf course because mm. of the tree-lined fairways. Um, when we get our snowbirds in, if they're coming out for a you know, a golf trip, a lot of times I recommend they come play 49er if it's a warm-up round, if they haven't played for you know a couple months because of the snow on the ground. Um, you know, the, the thing about it is it's tucked into the corner of the mountains out there. That's what Rincon means All right. um, in the corner. Uh, but the golf course is, uh, it is. It's more traditional tree-lined fairways, um, elevated tees, elevated greens. Um, it's, a, it's a great golf course to play. It's, it's not going to kill you. It's not going to... Uh, you know, have a bunch of huge forced carryovers, desert and cactus. And mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, it's not what one thinks. No, it's not for the but desert. Yeah, you got to keep it straight. <laughs> It'll challenge you that way. You got to keep it straight. And of course, if you, you know, if, if it talks your cork at the moment, simply go to the 49ers website, which is 49ercc.com. That's spelled out F-O-R-T-Y-N-I-N-E-R-C-C.com. There you go. Okay, so do that. There's some lovely photographs, great stories to look at, and it'll give you everything about the club. You can't, uh, you can't fail. All right? We're going to be back with Casey another time. You're listening to Tucson Means Business. My guest is Mark Ziska. He's co-author of Do Not Harm, Do No Harm. Do No Harm offers a proven and time-tested five-step process to help law enforcement organizations overcome the hurdles that they're currently facing. Let's face it, we've seen plenty of it this year. A community trust is critical. Engagement and involvement, as well as the use of force incidents. I mean, look, it's a tough job at the best of times, but, you know, look, your co-author, uh, Raymond, right? Ramon or Raymond? Ramon. Ramon, I beg your pardon. Uh, he and you wrote this book after developing, testing, and proving that your five-step system works. Now, he was a former police chief, was he not? He, he is. He's a retired police chief from Mesa, Arizona, and he also was an assistant chief here in Tucson before he moved to Mesa. Hmm. Well, he'd know firsthand what many law enforcement organizations are up against, wouldn't he? He would, and he does. So he helped create the system and implement every step of your process. Tell us a little bit about that. So I've known R Ramon for a number of years when he was here in Tucson, and I learned law enforcement really through him. And you mentioned uh, Pima Community College prior I was the vice chancellor of Pima Community Council College Human Resources for about a year. Mm -hmm. 
I was an interim position. And in that job, one of the first things I did was called the police department and asked to go on a ride along. Many people don't know, but Pima has its own police department, Pima College. Uh, I didn't know that. And the officer who picked me up for the ride along, uh, and I didn't know whether he was going to put me in the front or the back seat because they said <laughs> they had to do a background check on me. So I was uh, ready to go either way, but he let me in the front seat and he told me that I was the first person from the district office who ever asked for a ride along. <laughs> well, and if I like? can tell what? you Good. just one quick story about that, sure. it was amazing to me. It's an eye opener. Police officers, we know, have a really tough job. They're very caring people. They really are caring people. So we're on the ride along, and if you're driving between campuses, if you're a police officer driving between campuses, you're a regular sworn officer, just like TPD or the highway patrol or any other sworn officer. And we're following a car that had a, a tail light, a, a brake light uh -oh. that was broken. Mm -hmm. And so it was shining white in our eyes. And he said, well, here's your first stop. We're going to pull this guy over. Long story short, he pulls him over. He turned out to be a Pima College student. And the officer checked and ensured, yes, he's a Pima College student. And the officer says, I'm not going to give you a ticket. I'm not even going to give you a fix-it ticket. I'm going to help you fix that. He went to the back of his car, pulled out of his trunk a roll of red tape. And he and the car owner covered up that broken brake lamp so that it was with red tape and it appeared equal to the other brake lamp. Mm. So here he showed that passion for his job to help others and his compassion for this young man who mm -hmm. probably didn't have a lot of money. And he told him that the next time he saw him, he was going to remember that car and it better be fixed. Well, there you go. I mean... A student probably didn't have the money to get it fixed. I remember as a young fella, you know, I had a busted taillight and got pulled over. Same principle in Australia with the cops. You know, they're just trying to help you. Look, you've got laws, you've got lights that are supposed to work, things that are supposed to look the same, and, hey, you don't have it, what happened? But to be nice to you and help you and don't book you on that sort of thing, that's a, that's a great thing, isn't it? Yeah, you know? it was, and it was really refreshing and rewarding to see that. So what are the five steps reference in your book, Mark? So the five steps are really simple, and they come out of business principles. The business principles are proven over years of experience, not by me, but by everybody who is leading a successful organization. And those are, number one, identify the values. And when I say identify the values, not a plaque that's on the wall, but what do the employees really believe in? In this case, what do the officers really believe in? And those officers that I interviewed, I interviewed over 200 officers, there was really three things. It was really a belief in a higher power. It was belief in family, and they extended family to their coworkers and the people on the community that they came in contact with. Uh, the positive ones anyway. Mm -hmm. And then the, the third was to protect those who need protection. I picked up a fourth one yesterday, uh, and uh, I, I will say that I was talking to our new sheriff, Chris Nanos. Chris won't mind. <laughs> uh, 
he is a wonderful man. And he said, there's really a fourth and that's compassion. That's caring for people. And so if you look at law enforcement, that's really what they're about. If yeah. you start with those values, mm-hmm. build your organization around those values. And then second step, develop a strategic plan. That's that strategy maniac in me. I've got to push a strategic plan that makes the organization accountable. Number three is ensure that everybody in the organization knows what their job is and how they contribute to the strategic plan. The fourth step is to measure the strategic plan and ensure that you're accountable to do the things you said you were going to do. And the fifth step is to celebrate your success. It's that simple. That's the basis of the book. Okay. Now, how did you, with all you had done in the past, well, actually, when I think about it, you know, and the psychology involved with, um, you know, recruitment and people and what you had to handle, I was going to say, how did you make a transition to working with law enforcement? Well, I was a, I, I have been an executive coach for a number of years. And I worked with uh, many members of law enforcement as an executive coach. And it's interesting because it's not thought of that in the ranks of law enforcement that executive coaches are for them. But when they experience executive coaching, they see that it's really sharpening their skills, honing their skills to move into higher levels of responsibility or to be better at what they do at their current levels. So it was really through those people that I coached that I got into law enforcement. And Ramon brought me with him, I'll say brought me with him. He was there for almost a year before he brought me into Mesa. Mm -hmm. And he said, Mark, we need to change the culture. And we worked on a cultural change that started with the values, with a strategic plan and then accountabilities through, throughout, uh, and it proved to be very successful. I, I'll, I'll give you an example. Right. And these are numbers that I recall from memory. I don't have them in front of me, but in the five years prior to us w- working this project, Mesa averaged the second highest level of critical incidents. Those might be shootings. Those might be officer-involved complaints, we'll call those critical incidents. 17 critical incidents per year on average in the five years prior to us doing this project. Afterwards, it was two critical incidents per year. Mm. That's a demonstration that it really works. Yeah, well, it can be done then. There's no doubt about it. Yes, it can be done. In all of your research then, you must have interviewed patrol officers. And, and what, do, what do these patrol officers identify as their values? Their values are simple. Their values are um, to serve and protect. They want to protect the people. There's often a term that's used in law enforcement. It's either the warrior or the guardian mentality. They really believe in that guardian mentality. They believe that they're there to protect. Mm. They look at themselves as being part of a family part of a bigger family. They have that belief in the higher power. And as I said, uh, Chris Nanos said that the fourth one is really compassion and caring for people. So if you combine those, 
if you combined all the interviews that I've had, those are the ones that stand out. Let me ask you one out of left field. Okay. Good cops, bad cops. How can you prevent them from joining the force to start with? Well, that's a, that, that is a very good question. And I'm going to now go into what we call competencies for the job. And we write about competencies for the job in the book. That's like the secret sauce that makes it all work in the end. Mm. If you identify the competencies for the job, and I will just give you an example. So we say that an officer must have, have trust. They must trust their coworkers. Coworkers must trust them. Trust is a very vague word. But if you can identify that in behavioral terms, so that something that you can see, such as an officer is true to his or her word, that's visible. We identified 10 competencies for an officer, and we stratified those as those who exceed your expectations. They're the champions in the job those who are doing the job and doing a very good job of it, and those that need improvement. And we had those behavioral anchors at each one of those levels. So to get to your specific question, how do you weed people out? You make the competencies a part of your uh, selection process. From the very first time you post a job on your web, to the interviews, to taking somebody through the academy, you reinforce those competencies and the values of the organization. And it's easy to see who fits with those values and, and, and who don't fit with those values. Now, we know that law enforcement is understaffed. I am not, I got to be careful here because mm. I do not support defunding the police. The police need the funds they have now and they need to be able to fill the jobs that they have. We need the police. Of course. So the oftentimes people are hired just to fill a job. You can't do that. You have to be true to your values as an organization and the person coming in must have those same values and set of competencies that you expect. I hope that answered it. Wow. Yeah. You know, uh, they get such a bad rap. Um, the police, the cops, the fuzz. <laughs> uh, the wonderful work they do in our community. But this Thank year, you. the way it's turned and, and, and shocking. You know, I've been in the media for 40 years and I just think some of the coverage is, is, uh, is disgusting, the way they portray the force. And it makes them look worse than what they are. What, what are you going to do when you're in their position? What are you going to do when you're having your lunch, sitting there minding your own business, talking with your buddy, and somebody idiot walks up and shoots you both in the head? And what are you going to do with all the nasty things you hear about? But what do we see? We see a guy leaning on the neck of somebody. I can't relate to that either, and you should have let him breathe. But there's so much stuff that needs to be fixed. And I, I don't know, did you find racism a big part of it all in your research? Well, again, that's another really good question. And let me go to the history of policing as we researched it and wrote it in the book. The history of policing in the United States is really a history of two parts of the nation. In the 1700s, 
in the Northeast. It was highly um, manufacturing and production. So they were producing goods and services. They had the ports. So in the Northeast, they hired police to protect the ports. That was critical to them to keep the ports and the merchants safe. Now we moved to the South and in the South policing was about catching runaway slaves mm. and policing slaving. And so when we look to what the roots of an organization are and the foundation, if we have a foundation that was built in catching runaway slaves, it's hard to see that there is not racism. There is racism. So I need to speak to my own racism because I have inherent bias in me. And I understand that it's not something that we just realize. My wife helped me. My wife brought this to my attention. My wife's uh, an instructor at the University of Arizona. She teaches Spanish. Mm. And she helped me to understand bias. And if it hadn't have been for her helping me to understand bias, understand bias when we watch TV, understand bias when we watch Netflix, and looking back at my life, looking at situations that demonstrate to me that I had in, in, I have inherent bias. So the police officers are no different than I am. They've come through this same community that I've come through. Some have come through a more, uh, a, a more difficult, and I say difficult, I'm really referring to a more racist background mm -hmm. than I had. And some have come through a more liberal background than I had. So when you combine those, there is racism in policing. Well, I think a lot of it's also where you live in America. I mean, I've been on and off now 20 years uh, in this country. And, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of things. And, and the reality is uh, I don't open my mouth anymore because um, to a degree it could be taken the wrong way. But I see looking in from the outside you know, but maybe some others don't. But I also come from a country where we don't have guns, and it makes a big difference. Anyway, let's let's get off that and talk about your wife. What's okay. her name, by the way? My, my wife's name is Marcy, Marcy Ziska. Marcy. Okay, now I understand, Marcy, uh, what, of 30 years, marriage was influential yeah. in shaping your approach to writing, Do Not Harm. How did that well, come about? She, as I mentioned, she helped me realized the inherent bias that I had. And by identifying the inherent bias that I had, I was able to acknowledge it and to have open dialogue with Ramon and other law enforcement uh, officials about the bias that might, might exist, my bias, their bias. And I have to go all the way back to Raytheon because we had a program in Raytheon where I, it was brilliant. It took the leaders, it took us leaders, us white males who, who were privileged. We, there's no doubt we're privileged. And some of my co-executives at the time would say, and maybe today, oh, that's BS. There's no such thing as white privilege. There is. Mm. 
and we were privileged. Raytheon had this interesting approach where they took us white males and had us teach, had us understand and teach diversity and inclusion. I will say that that helped to open my eyes also to diversity and inclusion. Mm. And with my wife, I was able to have these dialogues and she was able to challenge me and it hurt. Many times it hurt. I didn't want to acknowledge it. And then I'd come back later and say, yeah, you're right. <laughs> that was coming from a, from a place of bias. Jim, so she helped me open my eyes right. and then she helped me to focus my work and attention to get the job done and get the book written. See, behind every great man, there's a better woman, isn't there? <laughs> She's much better than I am, right? Uh, Mark, do you think that uh, TPD could use your help? So it's interesting. I would say that TPD has done a very good job. TPD has what I see, uh, and, and I'm not as involved in TPD as I am other law enforcement organizations, but I think Chief Magnus has done a really good job of, of identifying bias, inherent bias, working with the community. And there are some situations that have popped up, like there was one that was just in uh, the, the star over the weekend. Uh, and the chief is having some difficulty with the Civil Service Commission or their merit commission. So... A week ago, I would have said, no, I think TPD is on the right track. Today, I would say, I think TPD is on the right track, but I think they could use our help too. Mm -hmm. Well, money, budgets, not enough police perhaps to do uh, certain work. Um, you get other problems like uh, uh, wasting taxpayers' money with uh, certain security systems and domestic you know, calls and takes them a long time to get there when really they didn't even need to get there on a 911. Right. Uh, there's all sorts of things the public don't think about that don't make the job easy. Now, I understand that you have a pledge to do no harm and reform law enforcement culture on change.com. Tell us about that, if you would. We, we, we do. We wanted to create awareness and it's a grassroots awareness on an organization called change.com that identifies uh, social justice issues. We look at do no harm as a social justice issue and on do on, excuse me, change.org slash do no harm. We have a pledge and the pledge is simple. It's to protect and serve. Uh, we believe that reform is not retraining, it's not defunding, that the police reform or change stops at the top of every organization. We believe that police reform is best maintained over the long run when there's a cultural shift. And we believe police reform is possible. So we ask people to read our pledge, and if it resonates with them, to sign the pledge. There's no charge to sign the pledge. Uh, it is just something that helps us with awareness. Now, did I make a boo-boo? Change.org or .com? It is change.org. That's what I thought. Okay, .org. So, I could have said change.com, but it's change.org. Yeah, I need to it's a not-for-profit, right? That. It's a not-for-profit. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, does your approach uh, also apply to the business community? 
well, it does. It comes out of the business community. Those five steps really uh, come out of the business community. I mentioned Yum Foods as being a very good example of having these five steps and the alignment. Uh, you can look back to work that Tom Peters has done, uh, some of the other business authors. It's basically the same concept. And we're taking that concept and applying it to police departments, but it could equally apply and does apply to other organizations. I've worked in the medical field, as we talked about. I've worked in mining with uh, organizations in mining, policing, uh, medical. So it, it applies to everything. I'm a great believer of, uh, which I didn't find when I worked in corporate corporations. I'm not a corporate dude. I'm very much a private entrepreneur. And have been for most of my life, but I, I'm a great believer of speaking up, getting things off your chest, speaking from the heart, uh, getting things out and not holding them back. And unfortunately, it's only of late that corporations are learning to do that between their top executives and so on. And it could have stopped a lot of friction, but when it comes to police and, and comes to officers, do they get a chance to talk uh, straightly, you know, talk straight from the hip, to their superiors oh. and to others in a room? Do they get a chance to, you know, like, uh, g'day, I'm Peter and I'm a police officer. Welcome, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> they probably have more chance than any other organization. And how they have more chance is because they're on their own so much of the day or night, depending on their shifts. They're in their patrol cars. They're detectives that are on the street. They're undercover. They do come together at the start and end, maybe even the middle of their shift for their break, lunch break. They come together and they talk and they talk very openly. And in in every uh, precinct, I'll call it, that's not the word in every organization, but in every precinct, there's always somebody in supervision or in command who's in that building and listens to those officers. Mm -hmm. Now, are there people who don't listen as well as others? Absolutely. But in the organizations that I've worked with, I see more open and honest dialogue in police organizations than in any other organization. Well, that's good. That is good. Now, as a civilian who has been behind the scenes of law enforcement, what's your view on modern law enforcement? Well, modern law enforcement needs to be different than it is today. How it needs to be different is it needs to be closer aligned with the community. If we talk about values, those values don't just come from the policing organization, the law enforcement organization. The values come from the community. So if you listen, if you're a police department that listens and engages with the community and aligns values with the community, those are the organizations that are going to be successful. When I was meeting with Chris Nanos, talking to him, one of the things that we talked about was that in my perspective, not his, in my perspective, police are actually the closest to a superhero that we have. They unfortunately can take life, but I have seen officers bring people back from the dead. People who were overdosed, 
maybe a heroin overdose, mm. and they give them that shot of Narcan, and the person pops right up back to life in an instant. Five years ago, ten years ago, that people that person would have been dead. Well, so. drugs are still the, the worst thing. There's no doubt about it. But there may be some changes with now with the new laws in. But uh, there could be. you know, maybe they can focus on other areas. So to serve and protect. I mean, this is the mission of law enforcement professionals all across the country, is it not? To serve and protect. Exactly. So we believe police reform you say is not retraining the police and police reform is not defunding the police. And also we believe police reform starts at the top of every organization. The good old, you know, the fish stinks at the head type thing, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, that's it. You know, we believe police reform is best maintained for the long term when there is a shifting culture and emphasis on shared values with the community. This is all in the book, folks, and we believe police reform is possible and we can change organizational culture to dramatically reduce the use of force and improve community relations. And we pledge to support our law enforcement community as they undergo a cultural shift to not only serve and protect but also do no harm. I think it's going to be a fabulous book. I think it's going to have uh, a lot of people talking. Where can I buy this book? Right now, we're on our own website. It is donoharmbook.org. Donoharmbook.org. On that website, you can sign our pledge. You can order a book for yourself. You can sponsor a book. We are not for profit. So you can sponsor a book for organizations. We've had books sponsored for the Detroit Police Department, Kenosha Police Department, the Chicago Police Department. So people are reading the book and they say, our police department needs to read the book. And so what they do is they sponsor books and we send those out to the Leadership, and not only with the leadership, but also the officers who are on the front line. So we spread the wealth. So I was going to, to say, I just forget the um, the terminology of it, the name at the moment, but the Fallen Police, you know, that organization for the families. Right. Um, so yes. funds can go to that as well. So isn't that good of you, eh? I mean, you're not going to line your pockets with the millions made from the book sales, huh? <laughs> well, we hope to make millions, but we want to give back. 99% of that. So, folks, uh, did you get a chance to write that down? I mean, this is going to be on the site on Tucson Business Radio X here, uh, .com, of course, online. It's going to be permanently on the site as the photo um, that you're going to see of Mark. You can always contact him. It's donoharmbook.org, okay? And, um, well, LinkedIn, Twitter, I don't have any of those, but if anybody really would like to get a hold of you, well, what is really the best way? Just through that site? They can get a hold of me through email. I'll give you my email. Okay. My email is Mark Ziska, my name, M-A-R-K-Z like in zebra, I-S-K-A, at C-P-O-H-R.com. Chief People Officer, Human Resources.com. All right, I'm going to uh, 
I'm going to put that up on the site as well on your uh, bio Thank and you. so on, so people can do that because I think you'll get some calls, Mark. With you, no doubt, you're going to get some speaking uh, scenarios out of this, and I think you're going to do a lot of good. I think. Look, times are changing. It is a time of change. Uh, all sorts of things. We're in a very unique year, going into a very unique period, and uh, I think your timing is spot on with this. Um, and Ramon, congratulate. Uh, him for me too, will you? I you get will. the chance. And I'll send this link to you, and you're welcome to put it on your website or anywhere else social media you'd like to do. And, of course, um, we'll send it on to uh, Ramon as well. So, Mark Ziska, ladies and gentlemen, Do No Harm is the name of the book, and please go to uh, get this book. The monies are going to great causes. Do no harm book dot org. O-R-G, okay? Mark, absolute pleasure speaking with you. I wish you all the best in the world with this. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. Goodbye now. Bye.